my parenting should be questionable. And so that's why I say to Bubba, ask me questions because the quality of my daughter's life and the quality of any organization's outcomes will depend upon the quality of the questions they ask, not the quality of the answers that they're given, but what questions you ask. Don't ask the right questions and it doesn't matter. You're listening to another episode of Success with Purpose, where we hold conversations with the most holistically successful people we have the opportunity to connect with. We explore their journeys, their life-changing events, their perspectives, their mindset, and most importantly, their purpose. I'm Harry Goldberg, host, interviewer, and interrogator of this podcast, father of the most incredible daughter in the world, husband of an incredible woman, and director and empowerment coach at Purpose Advisory. Hope you enjoy this episode. And don't forget to subscribe and like below. Now, let's begin. Michael, you're not my typical kind of guest. So most people I've interviewed have been highly successful climbing the corporate ladder or building amazing entrepreneurial businesses, keynote speakers to tens of thousands of corporate and government employees. But this podcast isn't just about financial success. It's about holistic success and success with purpose. And so to describe your success and why you're on the show is a challenge for me. And that's why I'm so excited to have this conversation, because the position you've climbed to, the title that you've earned, and the role which I know has inspired so many, including myself, would best be described as Charlie's dad. And so I thought the best way that I could give a brief overview of your journey for our listeners, uh, before we dive into it a whole lot deeper throughout this conversation, is an excerpt from your book of Who Knew. And so here's the quote. From being a burly bouncer and doorman by night, providing security for almost every local and international rock star that traveled to Australia, a bodybuilder, personal trainer by day, living up in Melbourne's 80s and 90s, I guess by night. Uh, being from this clique, one realizes that lifestyle is one of fanciful excess, granting complete disregard for the future. You think you're invincible, unstoppable, bulletproof. So before we dive into this journey, which I'm really excited to explore, Michael, how do you, how do you define success? Oh, Harry, with me, I, I don't even like trying to define success. What I prefer to go through is satisfaction okay. because success is, is an end point. At what point are you successful? At what point do you stop striving and sit back? And so I prefer to say, am I satisfied? If my life stays as it is, I'd be more than satisfied. But do I want to say where I am? you know, it, it, it doesn't really matter, but I, I like to be able to go, if the opportunity arises, if something piques my interest, um, I'd do it. I, I went back to, or went to university at 57 to start studying developmental psychology. I was 30 years older than the oldest person in there, just because it interests me. I wanted to know um, the fundamentals of why my daughter was developing in the way she did. And so that's, that to me is success, having options, being able to uh, take, take the opportunity when it arises and be able to meander down paths not often travelled and find the interesting things that you, you never would have imagined and go, great, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give that a go. So this is interesting because in your definition you said, you know, I don't, I don't really like this whole idea of success. It's just about satisfied. If I didn't do anything else and I stayed where I was for the rest of my life, I'd be... I'll be satisfied and I'll be happy, so therefore successful. 
then you said, I can't just stay where I am. I got to have the op- in order to be successful, you got to have the opportunity to do more things, meander through and uh, do anything that piques my interest. So which is it? Um, we're all a work in progress, yes. I think, Harry. And um, I'm eternally curious. And that, that, to me, is one of the, the highlights of being a, a dad to a, a youngster is that enthusiasm and curiosity where everything's new and amazing and uh, wonderful. And just to be able to go, you know, great, like, wow, look at that. How fantastic is it? And seeing it in my daughter's face and you realise how complacent and jaded and um, unreflective we've become where we we don't actually look at things and go, well, you know what, uh, I've become used to it. I've become habituated to the amazingness of the world and sometimes just being able to sit back and explain things or figure things out with her or have, you know, my daughter's just turned 10 and a lot of the time she'll go, but why, Dad? It just is. Yeah, but why is it just like that? And then when you actually look at it and go, you know what? You're actually right, Charlie. There's no reason why it should just be. So, you know, go at it your own way. Yeah, I love that. Because I've I've heard so many parents now, literally heard them start saying to kids when they're asking why, start saying, well, because some things are and some things aren't and you can't have what is, isn't and what isn't is. And that's just the way the life is. You're going to have to deal yeah. with it. And that, yeah. that's part of what I was drawn towards you. I think it was some post on LinkedIn probably a year ago, whatever it was. And just seeing you talk the complete opposite with regards to trying to use that curiosity and that playfulness within yourself to be able to take the opportunity to keep learning and using your daughter as the excuse to keep doing it and the reason, right? Yeah, exactly, Harry. And, you know, you know, I will say to my daughter, you know, sometimes, you know, Things just are, but your attitude towards it can change. So, you know, we have a rule in our house, first things first. And that's what I'd say to Charlie all the time. But the reason they're called first things first is because they have to happen first or they should happen first. After that, figure it out. But um, my whole thing is my parenting should be questionable. And so that's why I say to Bob, ask me questions because the quality of my daughter's life and the quality of any organization's outcomes will depend upon the quality of the questions they ask, not the quality of the answers that they're given, Mm. but what questions you ask. Don't ask the right questions and it doesn't matter. And that's why I think diversity is such a great thing for organizations because people from diverse, not just gender and race, but situation and circumstance, will often ask questions that were beyond our, our realm of uh, experience to even consider. So, you know, there are people that come from humble backgrounds that will see such um, wastage and excess in some of the spending. And, you know, whereas somebody who's uh, had the advantage of you know, money and resources wouldn't do it. And I found that with time-wise when I first became the sole carer to my daughter, suddenly I was forced to reevaluate my business as a trainer, I own gyms. And it was right now I was paying uh, a little bit more in childcare than what I was paying in mortgage. And it was just, this is ridiculous. So I found a way of compressing seven days worth of work into three days worth of work. 
But if it hadn't been for the constraints that I was placed under, that innovation never would have happened. And now I've just kept it and I'm more productive in, in a shorter amount of time than what I was because I had had the well, disadvantage of the abundance of time. So the dollars earned per hour were so much less than what they are now. And now I've got more time to focus on what really matters to me at the moment. Yes. Now that, that sounds... That sounds so much closer to uh, that definition of success, like when you were refining it, of the opportunity to kind of do whatever piques your interest and to be able to explore what you want to do and spending time with Charlie or being able to do whatever it is that you're excited about, going back to uni, doing more personal training, whatever, because at the end of the day, it's up to you because you have, it's not so much that you had the resources to be able to do it, but you managed the resources which you had. Yeah, and, and that's why I say, Harry, there's always an opportunity wrapped up in a problem. And my one of my favourite quotes is, innovation thrives within constraints. Mm-hmm. So when you can't do something, but that something needs to happen, you find a, way of, find a way of doing it. So sometimes a constraint is a really good thing. You become uh, more productive, more innovative, more frugal. So it's like, great, well, that organisation, that team, they have all of this and look at their outcomes, well, we don't have that, but, gee, we want those outcomes. How can we achieve it? You can't just go, we don't have that, so we can't achieve it. It's, there's always a way. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's explore this journey. So let's, let's hear everything which went up to, I guess, everything before Charlie. Well, not everything, but that, that first 49 years of your life. What, who was Michael in that first half? Um. Grew up in the grew up in the country was uh, definitely the result of free range parenting. You know, we're out catching snakes and riding motorbikes and all of the things that would give uh, modern parents a, a heart attack. Um, typical heteronormative family. Dad worked and worked hard. Mum ran the household. Um, Mum didn't even have a license until Dad had a stroke. So you know, really typical breadwinner caregiver. Um, family. I, I think my biggest preparation for parenting was my mum saying to me one day, "Wait till you have kids, you'll realise." And that that was about that was about it. Um, had what would be called a colourful life. I was never um, and had the advantage of you know my dad would support me in whatever I wanted to do, but he would also make sure that I wore the consequences. So you know I wanted to leave school early. Said, well, you're not leaving school until you have a job, and uh, got me a job, and so then it was right. And if you lose your job, you either go back to school or find another job, or you're out. And that was at uh, 14 years old. Managed to get along. Suddenly, my colourful youth uh, lent me into becoming a bit of a security guy, and then from that ended up doing personal security for all the rock bands and travelling the world. Um, with my training, I ended up doing, again, wanted to understand their reasons for the training. So went off and did exercise science, became an elite level strength and conditioning coach, managed to work internationally and uh, for some professional tennis players, AFL strength and conditioning, owned a couple of gyms. Everything that I started, Harry, I, I knew I didn't want to work for a boss. I liked doing my own thing. But also liked having the freedom of going, you know what, uh, I want to do this, I'm going to do it. And then suddenly at 49, uh, bang, 
I was a father and it seemed like the first 49 years of my life were, you know, not wasted, but just in preparation to this. It just suddenly I'd found something of true value and worth and fulfillment in being that parent up until then. It was just a life of uh, excess and party. What changed? What changed in your psyche when you saw Charlie and realized, well, I'm a, I'm a dad and I'm responsible. What happened? And there was a, a, a sudden realization of all that my dad had taught me. He, he was like Darth Vader. He used the power to <laughs> um, teach me without teaching me. Suddenly, the lessons that were there became so obvious. I'd never been so grateful um, for my dad. And, of course, my mum as well, who's the most amazing uh, grandmother now. But the values that my dad instilled in me, and that's what I, I usually try and suggest to men. You've got to find your values because until they're your internal, intrinsic, deep-seated values, you're all over the place. You're, you're like a, a dog dashing from dish to dish because not every opportunity is actually for you. So having values doesn't make life um, hard or rigid. It makes it so easy to go, you know what, thanks, but... No, thanks. It's not really for me. And, you know, when I, I, I get a lot of opportunities with the strength and conditioning to go back and, but it would mean traveling with the teams and there's good money in it. And it's just, you know what, it's going to take me away from my daughter. And she's 10 now. By the time she's 12, I'll probably be too daggy or embarrassing to hang around with. So while I've still got the opportunity, it's, it's not it. I'm going to make the most of it. So I think with our success journey, a lot of us have this rigid idea, but things change. You can never step in the same river twice. Twice, And as life flows, things change. So if we stay focused on that one narrow definition of success rather than, as I say, that satisfaction, you know, I can find satisfaction every day, but it doesn't mean that I'm successful every day. Whether I say success is a a certain position, a certain income, a certain uh, possession. Well, if the journey's not good because we don't make it to that outcome, has all that time been wasted? Whereas I'm just building on today was satisfying, tomorrow's satisfying, I've got a drive to do this. Regardless of the outcome, there's no hard feelings, there's no wasted energy. So, you know, that's why I'd say to guys, you know, that's you know, thanks, I really appreciate the offer and uh, I'm humbled by it, but it's just not for me anymore. Mm. So what I'm hearing you say is that once you were able to identify what your values were, i.e. what's most important to you in life and the traits within yourself which you really wanted to, which you wanted to grow and foster, then you were able to really start having a more successful life as in more satisfied, more fulfilled. Your, your life was no longer just about, well, how can I just kind of have fun, like just have fun? Or your life wasn't just about how can I make more money from whatever I'm doing? It was, it was about, yeah, sure, the achievement and the enjoyment, but it sounds like it was also to do with impact. It was also to do with something beyond you. Yeah. Um, Harry, I've found that most of the things that I was thinking were fun and I was doing was because it was impressing other people. You know, it was like, wow, you got to travel with Bon Jovi. That must have been fantastic. And when I look back, 
Well, it, it was initially. It also got a bit lonely and it, it did get a bit mundane and it was like treading water for a lot of the times. It was not making any real progress and it was like eating a bit of junk food. Great at the time, afterwards, why did I do that? I don't, I don't feel that great about it now. And the same with, you know, the strength and conditioning and a lot of things. It was all about show because it impressed other people. And um, and as I said, while it was enjoyable at the time, when I look back, I think now in hindsight, which is always twenty twenty, you know, great experiences, and I wouldn't change them. But I've I've learnt a lot from them. Mm. So what would those what would those values have been? So you obviously you went through your life and you realised that even though you were you were the envy of a lot of people, a lot of people were like, oh my god, I wish I could have Michael's job. I wish I could be doing what Michael's doing. But you found it, you found it unfulfilling and unrewarding. What values did you realise when Charlie was born? Um, gee, Harry, I found that I wanted to be a great example for my daughter. I, I wanted her to um, not be influenced by others as I as I was. I wanted to, you know, find fulfilment in her own satisfaction. To ask her own questions and for her to be exactly who she wanted to be one of the biggest problems we had with our kids or one of the biggest worries we have developmentally is peer pressure being led astray by whether it be social media popular culture anything like that and getting so far down the track that they lose themselves and as I try and explain to a lot of the guys we can instill that peer pressure in our children where they seek our approval and um, what we, if we're not intentional about it. So one of the things is the human brain has always had the ability to read, always. But it wasn't until we became intentional about teaching that reading that that skill was adapted. So what I suggest to guys is when, when your kids say, you know, how good is this? What do you think? Throw the question back at them. Well, how do you feel about it? Is there anything you would do differently? If you got to do it again, would you change anything? Because our children's own opinion should be the one that matters the most. And that's what I want to in, instill in Charlie. So, you know, and that's why I say to Charlie, I'm going to love anything you do, but it's how you feel about it. What do you think? If you did it again, do you think it'd be better? or worse. And so I just want to do, uh, seek her own, own approval rather than other people's. And I, I wish that's what I'd learned because there was a lot of time wasted putting on a show for other people. And as I say to a lot of the guys when, when we do our talks, there's a whole bunch of blokes standing in a room wanting to belong to a whole bunch of blokes that are standing in a room wanting to belong to the same bunch of blokes and no one actually knows who they are. Yes. And some of the amazing um, outpouring of emotion that happens where, you know, I've had rooms of 100 men all crying because I've started crying. And when they find that safe space, that non-judgmental um, safety and psychological safety to be able to go, me too, uh, it, it's amazing what comes out, Harry. Yes. It's, it's fascinating what you're sharing because I... I, I struggle to believe that you've instilled this in Charlie just by telling her and being intentional about telling her all the time. It sounds like you've really put in the effort to show her as well. 
Yeah, Harry, one of the, I had an aha moment one day when Charlie said to me, Dad, I wish I wasn't scared of anything and could do everything like you. And it made me realise that, gee, I thought my dad was superhuman as well when we uh, grew up. You know, I, I lost a brother in a car accident. I saw Dad shepherd the whole family through that. And it's not until now that I realise how broken he was but held it together and I wish he didn't and that's why now I say to my bub I'm going to have a cry it's going to be a happy cry and she's oh dad not again so you know she gets an award at school and I'm the one whistling and yelling out and bub I'm crying again and I, I wanted to know that it's normal and it's natural and and it's very easy for us dads to you know um, assume the persona of the Iron Man, the super heroic, the, the stoic, staunch superhero. And that actually can make our children doubt themselves when they have these feelings and go, oh, you know, dad never did it. Well, so I make a point of, you know, expressing it all the time. And that's that's why I say to Charlie, oh, I'm scared. I'm scared of a lot of things. I'm you know, scared of you getting sick. I'm scared of me not being able to earn enough money to pay for things. I'm scared of all of these things come into it, but we go on anyway. We don't live in fear. We we live in purpose. So these are the reasons why I act is to avoid some of these things and other things I just do regardless. How many times have you found that it's, um, that for a lot of men, it's as a result of their relationship. There's an expectation on them from from their spouse or from their wife, that they're supposed to be that strong, invincible. And so it's no longer just society telling them, it's also their spouse expecting it of them as their role of a father of their of their child. How often do you find that? Harry, a lot. Society, men are struggling, Harry, at the moment. And um, I, I work in the equality space. And as I mentioned before we got on, I, I don't like the terms... Uh, women's rights, gay rights, trans rights, um, religious freedoms, all of those things. It, they're human rights and human freedoms. We all we all have an inalienable and well-deserved right to be respected for exactly who we are. As long as we're not doing harm to others, everyone has, should have the same thing. Men seem to have um, been overlooked in this march towards a new contemporary society because it's always been assumed that men have been all right. We have seven men per day dying from suicide in Australia. It's the largest cause of death for 18 to 44-year-old men. Now, if we had seven whales a day washing up on Bondi Beach, the worldwide outcry would be huge. But for some reason... It's not there. And then we get, well, men don't speak, men don't interact with the services. Well, to me, that's victim blaming. That's no different than, you know, what was she wearing when she got attacked or what was she wearing, how drunk was she? None of that matters. And if men aren't engaging with the services that are meant to help them, the services need to be redesigned. Because to me, that's the equivalent of the comedian going, well, that crowd's terrible. They didn't laugh at my jokes and I'm funny. Well, no, the services need to be fixed. So we've got men who still get teased. It's still, oh, man flu. Really? Seven men a day taking their own lives and you want to minimise their illness or um, try and dissuade them from going, oh, I'm a bit sick. 
by teasing them about it, you know, it's just man flu. It's just not acceptable. And, you know, men are struggling and just because they don't speak up doesn't mean that it's not happening. It means that they've been conditioned into that um, fear-based thing where I won't do it until they take the saddest path of all. So, you know, we often hear about the mental load that women suffer and the discrimination that women suffer, and they do, 100%. But there's a concurrent version of the male. It's the same, same coin, the opposite side of the outdated gender expectation. You know, even the, the thing where they say men need to speak up, well, you know, so do women. And the reason men don't speak up is often exactly the same as women. So there's a power imbalance. Somebody says something inappropriate to a woman uh, at a pub. The man speaks up, the man gets bashed. Happens all the time. Men are more likely to be the victim of violent assault than women. Happens at work. Somebody says something inappropriate, a boss or the power imbalance. Woman say they don't want to speak up because they're in fear of losing their job. It's no different to the co-worker who's a male. Uh, imagine that. Well, go home, honey, I lost my job today, but I did the right thing when the boss said something inappropriate to Sally. I told him that was not on and he sacked me. It's the exact same thing. This is where the true equality um, comes in. Trying to promote the outdated um, gender stereotype of men as the protectors and the heroes, not all of us are like that. I, as I say, I came from the thing as a bodyguard. I, I don't have a problem uh, doing it, but many men do, and that doesn't make them less of a man. Uh, less of a man, but until we realise, hey, we're all the same puppy with a different tail. Man, woman, transgender, all the rest of it. We're all insecure, wanting to fit in, trying to do our best, and worried about being judged. Once you throw that judgment out, once you go, you know what, I am who I am. And, you know, that's uh, so I say, I'm often the target of outdated gender stereotypes and expectations, but that's about them. What I will never be is the victim of it because that's on me. So do your best, throw your judgment, throw your stigmas. That says everything about you and nothing about me. Yes. Well, this is... There's so much to ask within that as well, but maybe maybe the best way to explore it is to continue your journey. So it was, I think it was when Charlie was two years old, you became a single parent, and then uh, a uh, then... single parent at nine months old. My my right. daughter's mother and I separated, okay. and then at two years old, her mother stepped out of Charlie's life and has had no contact uh, since then. Okay, and. What happened after that? Like what, what happened? Obviously, there was a lot of, well, throughout that period, there must have been a lot of conflict, a lot of uneasiness, a lot of insecurity for yourself and uncertainty. Uh, but what, what happened throughout that that basically got you as ready as you possibly could be for when it came to two years old and you were, uh, it was just you and Charlie? Um, Harry, it's funny, as I said, we grow up in that um, mother-centric world where it's, Mother knows best, maternal instinct, only a mother's love, and all, all those things. So um, we men grow up thinking that the best thing we can do is ask mum what we should do. 
and that makes us a good dad to be as supportive as what we can and just do as we're told. But that actually heaps more pressure on mum who may be struggling with all of the normal frustrations and challenges of raising an infant, everything from colic to sleep deprivation, all the way through to the other end, far end of the spectrum of um, perinatal depression, which men suffer from too. But because of these unrealistic and uh, fetishised Disney depictions of motherhood, a lot of women won't seek help because they're worried about being judged as somehow flawed, not only as a mother, but as a woman. And so they feel the need to actually take over. And there's a thing called maternal gatekeeping, which actually where mum feels she has to do everything and dad has to do it her way. And I often say to dads, don't be worried about parenting differently than what mum does because we both have unique and beneficial things to add. So if it was just a matter of doing it the way that mums did it, there'd be no need for dads. And we know that... Um, children with involved, engaged and present fathers have better outcomes on a range of important developmental milestones, everything from psychological, educational, literacy, all of these things that happen. And I hate to attribute things to gender. So what I think would be the, the causative rather than the correlation, if mum and dad are still involved and equally involved, whether it be together or separately, it means that there's obviously a respectful relationship being modelled there. So that's why I think these benefits happen because there's stimulus. So the way dads interact, the roughhousing, the um, better language, we use more technical and descriptive language than mothers naturally. That's not because we're male. So the uh, mum provided that stimulus, then the results would be the same. So if mum's roughhouse, children's risk-taking and self-confidence and all the rest, it doesn't have to be a dad and it doesn't have to be a mum. So, And dads can nurture as well as mums and be as affectionate and you know holistic as, as mums as well. So they say, well, dads do it this way, mums do it that way. No, we're parents, Harry. We're just, please, why is parenting the last bastion of contemporary society that hasn't had the outdated gender assumptions and stereotypes attacked. Now, I grew up in an age where you were a male nurse and, you know, it was policeman and policewoman and all of those things. Now it's a police person and now it's a nurse. And so we've got rid of all of those ridiculous things. You know, it was an, an air hostess and an and a air host and flight attendants now. So get rid of all of those. Women don't just become mothers, people become parents. And until fatherhood is spoken about in the same glowing terms as motherhood, equality just simply isn't going to happen. And it's not just about us, Harry, because I have a lot of women, or have had, and I get trolled as much by women as men. And I have a lot of women say, oh, but you wouldn't understand because a mother's bond with a child is special because we carry them for nine months. And... 100%, it's the most amazing thing. Any man who watches their wife go through pregnancy and birth and isn't in awe and just wonderment of the amazing things that happen and how um, indebted we are to them has a mindset I don't understand. But then to say, and I agree, I could never understand that. 
But for some reason, a lot of these um, mums that say this or have this perspective don't speak with such great clarity and confidence on the lesser extent and value of a father's love. Yes. And that's why I say 100% could not understand it. It's amazing. But you can't understand my experience and the depth of my love. But you're not only having a dip at father's, you're having a dip at grandparents, step-parents, adoptive, foster, same-sex parents who have achieved through surrogacy. So if we have um, two mums and one of them carries a child and the other one doesn't, does one mum have more love or better, you know, do we place more value on the love and the connection of her child? Of course we don't. Just stop and think about what what you're saying. Everyone's love for their child, it's a parent's love, not a mother's love. Not, And these are the things that lead to mums being shamed and guilted. Oh, but what about your kid? Well, dad's at home looking after her. Oh, well, you know, but you don't feel like you need, no, I've got a great career. Oh, but, you know, no, just please. What you're, What I'm reminded of when I'm hearing what you're saying is something which irks me every time I hear it is when a dad's looking after the kids and goes no, no I'm, I'm babysitting or the mum says no he's at home babysitting i'm like it's not babysitting if it's your own kid come on get with the times and parenting <laughs> parenting right so in that case if it's parenthood and there's there's the role of the parents what do you see as the difference between motherhood and fatherhood is there a difference oh, i don't think there is harry apart from birth and breastfeeding Dads can and should be doing everything that um, mothers are doing. And as much as we have our focus on initiatives and programs and legislation to try and get equality, true true cultural change happens within the home, within the family. Because what our children witness and what our children experience will become their expectation going forward. So the quickest way to, to get this get rid of the outdated gender expectations. And most of our social norms were set in a bygone time that are just no longer applicable. Our society, our workplaces, everything's in a state of flux. And it's not just about the jobs we hold, but it's about the values that we have within our family that are holding us back. So that, you know, well, dad went out and he worked hard and he was a great father because he was a great provider. Well, I can show you a plethora of studies that show there's no linear... Um, increase in children's outcomes for uh, income. There's, apart from the 20% of children who live in poverty, we don't really study uh, income and outcomes. There's a slight advantage for children uh, academically for um, income in the household, but it stops at university. Children from wealthier households tend to drop out of university or not finish their courses at a greater rate from those from uh, less affluent beginnings. So that's why I say to dads, if you were to sacrifice some of your income for more involvement, engagement and connection with your children, your children's outcomes would be uh, you know, improved in a, in a greater manner than going, right, I'm going to provide, I'm going to get resources, I'm going to do all, all of these things that we kill ourselves for. But then we fall into the trap, Harry, 
been part of it where you know, it's men, we've got to do more than other men. We're very competitive. Whereas um, women seem to be a, a little bit more um, community minded. So they just want to belong. Whereas men where you know, I'm going to drink more, I'm going to fight more, I'm going to have more women, I'm going to work. Oh, I worked 80 hours a week and I crushed it. Just sorry, but none of that impresses me. And if I'm not trying to criticise it. If you find fulfilment and satisfaction in that, great, more power to you. But you've got to ask yourself, really? Like ask yourself why that that drives you. It's like, um, to me, it's like somebody who can get that hot poker and push it in the hand and go, oh, look how long I can see it. Great, but why are you doing that? Like, why are you doing yourself harm to prove that you can do yourself harm? I'm reminded, as you're sharing this, I'm reminded of a client who came to me about a year or so ago. Uh, and yeah, I think it was late last year. Wow, it's that long ago. And he came to me saying, I need your help with getting investment property. Harry, help me get investment property. I said, sure, I can help you with that. But why? He says, oh, because I, mean, because I want another stream of income. I said, why do you want another stream of income? He's like, isn't it obvious? I said, not to me. Why do you want that? It's like, because I'm just, I want to be able to stop working soon. I want to reach financial dependence earlier. So why do you want to reach financial independence earlier? It's like, well, because I don't want to have to be working my job. Why not? It's like, isn't that obvious? I said, no, not to me. And he shared, well, it's because I've got a shitty boss and I've got team members who don't respect me. And I've got a colleague who just seems to be so much more intelligent than me all the time. And I just don't feel like I'm doing well enough. And he thought that was the end of the why. I said, why is that a problem? He's like, oh, because it makes me feel shitty. I said, why is that a problem? He's like, haven't we had enough whys? I said, not yet. Why is that a problem? He said, well, because then I go home and I'm not the best I can be. I said, what do you mean by that? He's like, well, I'm a, I'm a crappy husband and then I'm a cranky dad. And I just paused and he eventually said, I don't want to be a cranky dad anymore. I said, right. Is getting an investment property going to help you be less cranky of a dad? It's like, no, not yet. <laughs> I said, okay, well, let's work on what's most important. And it's, it's just so fascinating because it's usually, it's usually men who come through to us saying, I got to get the investment property. I got to get financial freedom. I got to get financial success or independence. I got to be able to earn more money. I got to improve my career. And it's usually because they're, that's what's been instilled in them this whole time. I believe it's because that's what's been instilled in them that all the time they've got to be the breadwinners. They've got to be the ones who are going out and earning money. And a lot of the time it's because their, their partners, spouses, wives, whoever uh, have taken time off work. And so their career is slowed and all the incomes increase. And then you're trying to work out, well, who's, whose career do we invest in? Well, of course we're going to invest in the one who's already further along, who has the greater growth trajectory. Let's go down that path. And that seems really common for any for anyone I've spoken to, or any couple I've spoken to, say over 40, for example. Under 40 yeah. seems to be a little bit of a different of a thing. Like it's it's different. I've most of most of my friends who have kids similar age, uh, the the mum takes off the first six months and then the dad takes off for the six months afterwards while the mum goes back to work. And so they both work on their careers and they both have beautiful bonds with their kids. And I suspect that what you were referring to of men are being taught 
uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, that they've got to work harder and beat others and, and improve and grow, while women are taught to be harmonious and connect with others and be more community-oriented, is what leads to men being more assertive in their careers and in the office, which usually means that they progress faster, which means that their income increases, which increases the gap, because if you're going to be more agreeable and less and more worried about hurting other people's feelings, then you're less likely to be able to grow in your career. And so exactly what you're saying, I've, I've always been a little bit irked by hearing we've got to work on this, on this gender inequality. So therefore, we need X number of women on the board or we need uh, X number, or we need to make sure that women's salaries in the organization are matching that of men's at the same role. And it sounds like from what you're sharing is that that's not the right answer. The answer is to deal with the cause, not the symptom. Yep, that's exactly what's happening, Harry. And that's why I, I keep saying we're so busy fishing people out of the river with the uh, legislation and programs and initiatives that they put in place rather than going upstream and going, how are they ending up in the river? Begin at the beginning. Until fathers are enabled, encouraged and expected to be held equally responsible for raising the next generation, women are never going to get to the same level as men. It starts the minute that the child is born. Mum has to has to recover from the birth. So she needs the initial part of uh, the uh, parental leave. Dads, guess what? You know, and we have a lot of women rightfully saying, and uh, I'm not condemning, but saying that women's work is undervalued and unpaid, their caring work. Well, it is. But you want to talk about undervalued? Dads in this country are entitled to two weeks at minimum pay. That's how much um, value and worth is put on our contribution to our children. Two weeks at minimum pay, $714. So, you know, we're on 100 grand a year straight away. One third of our wage for two weeks, guess what happens? Dad goes, well, you know, mum has to be at home. I've got to provide resources. That's what I've got to do. And off we go. We know about the motherhood penalty. It's spoken about often, and it is. It can take up to 12 years for a woman to get back for the money she takes takes off in career that she takes off to care for that children. What's less emphasised is what I call the fatherhood forfeit, that irreplaceable time, connection, and moments with our children. We miss the first steps. We miss the growth. We miss the school plays and the sports days and all of those things. And it's not just us. Our kids want us there. The number of times that I would be at a play centre with my daughter during the day and kids would be coming up, come play with her, they just want a male involvement. You know, I remember as a kid, the minute that dad would come out, you know, we'd be having a cricket match and it was like, yay, dads are here, Christmas parties. Once the dads got involved, it was yay. And, you know, that fatherhood forfeit, until it carries as much weight, until we can emphasise mums want to – that that do want to come in because let's not forget that um, one in three mums are a stay-at-home mum and we've got to be careful we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater here and um, diminish mums who find great fulfilment in it. And the same with dads. It's a parent. You know, I, I don't understand the mindset that says, and I really try to understand people 
I don't understand the mindset that says the most virile, masculine, manly thing you can do is to sire children. But somehow if you want to stay home and nurture and care for them and forgo all of the other stuff that happened before you had the children, somehow that's a feminine trait. It's like, really? Like, I couldn't have been a more blokey, blokey bloke drinking and fighting and all of those stupid things that uh, I did out of trying to impress others. And now, hey, if I can stay at home and bake cakes and learn new hairstyles with Charlie and do dress up, whatever, that's the stuff that fills me with joy. And, you know, I don't think I've become any less of a man uh, for doing it. And the same with women. They're not less of a mother. They're a great example for their daughters if they've got a good corporate career and they've found fulfilment and they're not trapped in other people's expectations. So we've just got to stop with this women have it worse, men have it worse. You know, affordable childcare is not a women's issue. And if we keep framing it as such, it will remain as such. Mm-hmm. So as, as I said, you know, I was paying more in childcare than my mortgage. And yet somehow it's, well, women need to come back into the workforce. We don't prioritise men's careers over women's. We prioritise income. And once we do that, guess what dad becomes? Right? You're a wallet for the family. This isn't about satisfaction. This is about you can earn more than mum can, so it makes sense. It's not a gender thing. The pay gap contributes to it, but it's not while men work, women don't. We've chosen we need as much income coming into the house. Childcare is a problem because it minimises that second income. But if it's mum that earns more and mum that wants to work, no one's going to go, well, you know, dad's going to have to go off to work and mum's going to stay at home. It's all about maximising income. Same as any financial decision. And that two weeks at minimum pay when basically you're the assistant. And what we've got in Australia is the ridiculous thing where mum and dad can take annual leave together, but we can't take our parental leave together. Yes. And as I said, you know, my daughter would change that quickly, that my mum who raised three kids, two of them turned out okay, one was a bit dodgy, um, my daughter would go around and mum wouldn't be able to settle on it and be like, mum, you know, she doesn't like that anymore, do, do this. It's just time in role that does it. It's experience that does it. So um, it's not so much mother knows best as, you know, progress, practice makes progress. And so we come home, Bub won't settle. We ask mum, how does it go? I should give a heel, do it straight away. Our role has been set with a willing and enthusiastic assistant and the, the die is set going forward. And just with a pay gap, it just starts to diverge further and further where it's, you know, kids get used to going to mum. That's okay. We feel a bit marginalised. And Harry, that happens to me. It was just my daughter and I for five years solid. I made a a conscious decision not to get into a relationship because I couldn't have someone else come and go into my daughter's life. And I also didn't think it was fair because if there was somebody who was interested, they were as interested in, you know, my daughter as they were with me. So it it just wasn't fair. But I've got an, an amazing partner now and... The first night where we stayed the weekend at her place and the bedtime routine is usually the piggyback and the sit on the bed. We do a gratitude journal and talk about the day and 
all those and the, the first night there was like rob can you put me to bed it was like a dagger to the heart i couldn't believe it it was and so it, you know women often say you know oh you know i wish i wish i wish but then it's really hard not to um feel marginalized when bub calls for dad instead of mum and vice versa and that's what i'm saying it's the same with me it's a parent thing it's it's not unique to mums or dads yes like with, with all those friends I was referring to all the people i know who have where the dad's taken time often they're taking time just after like kind of the 6 month mark or the 9 month mark and that's where that's where babies are really forming a lot of attachment like a lot of attachment because they can start to think things through and recognize faces and and connect with people more than just kind of their smell and get food and sleep and after that period of time the the kid will start when, when the baby starts getting a little bit upset like say a one-year-old and then doesn't want mummy wants daddy goes to daddy instead and mums have a lot of what i've seen is mums have a lot of judgment about that it's like oh, okay fine daddy's little girl she's just daddy's little girl that's all and yeah. that sound like that just seems so so counterintuitive because it's just so judgmental it's like you're you're flipping it over instead of saying look it's uneven and instead of saying let's make it equal it's saying well it's got to be uneven so let's just make it uneven the other way and yeah. it just seems to go too far yeah it it's it's really um we we need to get get through it and again it comes back to our own uh insecurities harry um, did you ever watch Space Odyssey 2001? No, I haven't. There's a bit in there where there's a computer called Hell and it takes over the spaceship. And in the end, it, it's artificial intelligence. And we all have an inherent distrust of artificial intelligence. Everything from self-drive cars, oh, you know, do we trust it to algorithms and anything that does it, we don't want to do it. And there's this one part at the end of the show where the computer prioritizes says we're not going to let the astronauts back in because it could mean that we die as a ship, so it locks them out and they're trying to override the computer. Well, to me, the voices in our head, and we all have them, that speak to us are like that artificial intelligence. We don't have to listen to it. So a lot of times I get this little, oh, it's like, well, that's interesting, but I'm not going to listen to it because... If that voice in my head was coming out of somebody else and it was negative or downplaying my ability or making me feel insecure, I wouldn't want to be around that person. So we all have these thoughts, but it's do we have to pay attention to them? Well, you know, they're often like cars going down a freeway. You get in the car and you realise the steering wheel was on the other side. Would you stay in that car if it was driving along or would you go, let me out, I don't like the direction this thought is taking me. I'm going to get off. Here's a thought going in the direction I want to go. That's the one that I'm going to listen to. And that's what happens with parenting. Every time I catch myself going, oh, do I look silly? Well, I probably do to others, but you know, well, what would it hurt? So when, and, when, when did you learn that? Um, right from the start, Harry, what happened originally, Charlie, I took her to ballet. So I was doing the, the stereotypical uh, girl things. So well, I... Girls like this, I think, girls like So we off to ballet we went and singing class and dance class and just wanted to uh, make some friends and connections because it can be isolating as a dad when everyone's off at work and all of the mum groups, just so awkward. Mm -hmm. Just 
so awkward to uh, be. And then I love a compliment as much as the next guy, probably more. But getting all these compliments about, oh, it's great to see your dad so involved and, you know, she's so lucky to have you and all of these things. And then it started to dawn on me, gee, you know, who did her hair? Well, I did. Oh, aren't you wonderful? I'm thinking to myself, I haven't cured cancer here. It's just a, a, a braid. And I didn't know how to do it, but I saw the other kids with it and I thought, you know, I don't want my daughter to look like she's with an inept uh, dad. So I, I want to look presentable and like I can cope because I'm worried about other people's opinion of me. So YouTube, here we go, can do a braid. And I liked it to start with and then I realised it's actually patronising. It, they come from a well-meaning place, but it's condescending. It's no different to me uh, saying to a woman, wow, you can drive a manual. That's amazing. Well, no, that's, that's, you know, I might think it's a compliment, but it's condescending to other women. Yes. So all of these things started to happen. Then at Charlie's ballet concert, a uh, three-year-old ballet concert was fine. Four-year-old ballet concert, we get all the information um, mothers are expected to be available, uh, be present for the full three-hour dress rehearsal. Mothers need to ensure that the ballet bun is done correctly. Uh, mothers need to ensure that the lipstick is the right shade. There's a special Mummy and Me ticket officer, and right at the bottom it's got, and, of course, there are no males allowed in the backstage area. That's, well, I'm used to replacing uh, mum for dad in everything from Dr Zeus books all the way through trying to uh, ruin the rhyme with mum to dad and yes. all of those things because I wanted to try and normalise our situation. Then we had the meeting and it was like, yeah, sorry, Michael, there's no males allowed in the backstage. And it was like, well, I have to be. I'm her parent and I'm her only parent. Then the response was, well, does she have a an auntie or a nan? I said, well, she's got both of those, but they both work. And they want to be out the front watching the thing. So it's me. And then it was, well, if you bring her to the backstage area, we're more than capable of looking after her. And I said, well, that would be fine if you were going to look after everyone else. But my daughter can't look around the whole backstage area and go, with a parent, with a parent, with a parent, with a parent, and here I am on my own. And that's why they said, well, Michael, it's not about you. It's about the other children. I said, well, no, it's not about me. And it's not about the other children. It's about my daughter being made to feel different through no fault of her own. And I said, this is going to be a a problem. We need to fix this. Because at that stage, we were just going through the marriage equality debate. I said, what are you going to do when it's two mums or two dads or whatever configuration contemporary families come in? you need to adjust to this. And luckily, all of the other mums came to my aid and said, well, we don't have a problem. They said, well, it's child protection. And I said, well, I've got my working with children check. I've been a swim teacher for the majority of my life as well. So I'm trusted with other people's children and you're telling me I'm not trusted with with my own. Luckily, one of the mums was a friend of Susie O'Brien from the Herald Sun and she gave her a call. It ended up, National, international, we're on BBC, all the rest of it. We had the ban overturned. And that's when it started to really dawn on me, Harry, that as much as we um, rightfully try and encourage 
equality for women into the workplace until men, as I say, enabled, encouraged and expected to be held equally responsible. Women's equality can't happen. So any friction or hurdle that dad experiences in being a caregiver ends up with mum carrying the load or the expectation on the caregiving. So I would actually like to see ring-fenced a certain part of the parental leave where dad must take half and mum must take half and employers need to subsidise their wage up until after the uh, government allowance. That would boost equality along quicker than anything else. In, uh, I think it was Norway, that same as us, around somewhere between 2 and 5% of fathers taking up the shared parental leave. The minute they made it user or loser, it's now up over 70% wow. of men take advantage of that. Wow. Why isn't that happening here? There's some powerful questions that you're asking, and that's an incredible story about your daughter with the ballet class as well. I mean, that's, that's what – it's almost as if until that point, you were just kind of doing your thing with Charlie and it was the first three years and it was just, uh, especially the last year of it, it was just you and her and you were, you were kind of just making it work. It would, it would work based off the interactions that you were having with other people and most of the mums were quite impressed that you were a dad being there for, for your daughter and that you were a single dad and doing it and they, they probably gave you some, uh, in some way, in, insulting compliments and but you kind of just made it work and it was only when you suddenly ended up up against the institution that things or at least the direction of uh, your intentions of your voice started to change yeah Tally, here in victoria uh, sorry harry here in victoria the first point of contact and the ongoing support hub for new parents is still called the maternal and child health center yes (laughs) where does dad go with up to between one in seven and one in 10 men suffering perinatal depression. If dad's not functioning well, mum wears the load. Two dads, they're still going to the maternal and child health centre. Just rename it and repurpose it as the parental and child health centre. I recently had it raised in the Victorian Parliament by uh, Rod Barton about changing it. But language matters, but it's also about repurposing it. So there needs to be, we've got dad groups and mum groups. We need parent groups and they need to be welcoming and, um, you know, fit for purpose. So you go in there and say, you know, any support for men. They give you a brochure for the men's helpline, which is, you know, basically a a suicide thing. And men have specific um, needs but they should be incorporated in. So it's such a huge missed opportunity not to be screening dad with it as well in that thing. So it's in dads need to know what's expected. They need to know what's coming up. They need to know that everything's okay because we have a lot of worries and we're always like, oh, you know, when does bub start having water? When does she start having solids? When does all of that? So we keep asking mum all of this stuff because She's up on it because she's been brought up with the expectation she'll be a mum. And so, again, that pressure and everything just keeps falling back on women. And we could fix this so easy if we just begin at the beginning so that our children see it. So it's like, yep, dads, 
dad's as much a caregiver as mum. I've got my choice out of who I go to. And that would fix so many of our problems. And I think men would benefit as well as children because as much as we hear men need to change, when you look at the reasons why men need to change, it's for women, it's for society, it's for their family. Well, I hate to tell you this, and it's sad, but in the race of, of life, self-interest is, is always the one that you want to back, put your money on. Men will change when you start telling men what's in it for them. What, how will men benefit? You'll be more connected with your children. You'll be more fulfilled. You'll be a better thinker. You, your emotions will be thinking. You'll actually even live longer. You know, if we want more caring, empathetic and emotionally intelligent men, we need to give them more opportunities to be emotional, empathetic and caring. <laughs> Through neuroplasticity, we actually have the ability to rewire the brain. Yes. Myelination, myelination, so those constant thoughts, we strengthen those things, we become better at it. It changes who we are and how the world impacts it, but also how we interact with the world. We become less competitive, less likely to be violent, all of these things, and it just begins at the beginning. Give them the chance to do it because our experiences shape our brain and our brain shapes our reaction. I, I love everything which you're sharing, and I, I supported a client uh, two years ago. It was, it was primarily around finance, not, not so much about the life stuff, but more around finance. And Part of part of what we did with them was help them envisage a future which they really wanted, something which they were really pulled towards, their life vision. And he described his uh, his future for ten years' time. It was husband and wife, but he described his uh, his vision and for his ideal day. And unsurprisingly, there was a lot about connection with his kids and the importance of uh, the role of his work as well. But he reflected on it as like, Man, I'm not living that right now. And so the question is, what can you do right now in order to change it? So when you've got a vision for the future and what do you want to, what do you really want your life to be, you don't have to then wait for that future to come to pass. You can make it happen. And he shared with me the very next day, he said that night, his two girls were refusing to go to sleep. Like they were just refusing to go to sleep. And the normal way that he would have approached it would have been stepping up as the dad, taking the hard line, get back to your bed. Now it's time to sleep. And it would have been a shouting contest and it would have been a big fight and everyone would have felt really crap and drained afterwards. Instead, what he did was, okay, what do you guys want to do? What do you guys want to do? What should we do as a family? And they wanted to dance to Moana. So, okay, so let's, let's dance to Moana for five minutes and then everyone goes to bed. Okay, and then they're all dancing and had a beautiful time, I think for like 10 minutes or something uh, in the living room at like 9 p.m., an hour past bedtime, and they're all having a great time and really enjoying themselves. And then the girls went to bed and they went to sleep all on their own. And the two of them had, uh, his husband and wife had a beautiful connection that night as well. And it's just from changing one's perspective, like changing one's perception of what is my role here and what's the future that I want and how can I create it right now? So you've had so much more experience of having these types of conversations with dads. What are some of the awesome kind of quick wins or the hacks which can really make it so much easier to avoid a lot of those pitfalls? Um, I, Harry, I always say to them, like, decide right now what sort of dad you want to be. Okay. How do you want to be remembered? What would you like? And it makes me tear up. <laughs> I can see. If, 
if you were sitting in the corner as a ghost watching your kids talk about you to your grandkids? What stories do you want them to tell? And just be that dad. It's not that hard. (laughs) Work, so many things impact us, Harry, and they're just ridiculous. I've come home and raised my voice at Charlie, and it's not about Charlie. It's about other stuff. And what happens is I'm not present. So a lot of times I'll say to dads, if you've got to stop the car five minutes before you get home, finish off on that phone, get your emails done, go, right, day tomorrow, here's what I've got to do, here's what I've got to do. And that first hour when you get in that home, make it madness. Make it run around, yeah! I guarantee you, within a couple of weeks, you'll see the change in your kids because all, all that our kids want is that unconditional love and acceptance. So, you know, mess, untidiness, all the rest of it, let it happen and then, okay, now we've got to clean up. But don't do not do this, don't do that. And the one thing that we've all got control of, we have hectic lives, we have work demands and all the rest of it. And it's very easy for me to say because I'm very lucky to be in a position of advantage to say, you know, that's not important and this isn't. So the quantity of time we may not have control over, but the quality we've got control over. So it's those moments between the moments. So if you can find five minutes in the car, if you know there's a certain song they like, put it on and rock out, make that five-minute car trip something fun. At the end of the night when they go to bed, if you can just lie on the bed and chat, about anything, whether it be something you've done, something you want to do, something they're interested in. We do a a gratitude journal every night together. And, you know, a lot of the times people say, oh, I don't have time. You're kidding. It's five minutes. Like, what is it that you need to get back to? And if your life is that busy, you need to reassess, you know, where your time's going. Do a bit of a stop take. We do it in business. That's why we say we go, right, our resources and assets are going that. How much return on the resources that you're putting into that are you getting? Because I guarantee you, if you focus on satisfying your child's needs, because every behavior is needs-based. So if they're mucking up, there's something underneath there. They're not cunning, manipulative, nefarious criminal masterminds that are just, right, how can I, you know, upset dad? There's a need that needs to be met. And if it means shutting the computer down, saying, right, you've got me for the next 15 minutes, what do you want to do? Whatever it is. And then coming back to it and uh, doing it. And, you know, I have a lot of dads say to me, I wish I could do that. And that's why I say, mate, wish all you want. It's not going to get you anywhere. You know, I get to see an organisation say, this year, we're going to increase our wishing by 15%. We think the outcomes will show great benefits. No, put some things in place and just go, you know what? I'm busy Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday, I'm going to leave work a little bit earlier and we're going to hit the pool. You know, no one ever regrets a swim. It's just, you can work around it and then go, well, I'll log back and I'll leave work an hour early. The amount of men that I speak to that sneak out of work put the coat on the back of the chair, sneak out, do the school run, sneak back in. I say, you're kidding. Crazy. Leave loud and leave proud. I have to do this. Don't be apologetic. It's like when you, um, you know, it, it's the most important thing. That's our why, why our careers are important. Apart from the fulfillment and the satisfaction, it's because we provide. 
sadly, the equality debate has seen caregiving classified as somehow separate from breadwinning. When you look at the outcomes for the 20% of children who live in poverty, breadwinning could actually be one of the most important fundamental parts of caregiving. But because we separated the two, well, you're a caregiver or you're a breadwinner, it's so culturally damaging because it has the potential not only to diminish, devalue and even damage a child's relationship with their father, but it also has the same potential to do with a mother's relationship with an employer. Or oh, you're primarily a caregiver and you're secondary the worker and dad the opposite. Mm. No, just the two need to, to go go together because it's allowed workplaces to be willfully blind to our why. If you want an engaged, productive, happy workforce that doesn't have burnout, turnover and leaving, most people leave their job not because of uh, increase, but because of the conditions, because of the stress. And dads and mums both are getting pulled in two different directions. You know, how much does it cost organisations in turnovers to retrain everyone? And as I say to organisations and uh, people all the time, if you've managed to become important, irreplaceable and vital within your organisation and somehow optional in your family, both you and your organisation are managing the wrong things. It's like any team. You can't have your best team on the field for 100% of the match. You've got to be able to move people up, over, across, in, out and be able to work together. We used to have organisations with silos. We had administrative there, we had sales there, we had manufacturing there, and never the three would meet. Whereas now we've got rid of the silos and everyone works together. And it's like, gee, you know what? Harry from sales is great in administration. He knows how to do a bit of the HR. He knows a bit of this. So should someone go on maternal leave or parental leave? And that's how organisations thrive. But great leaders are just like great parents. They don't hoard power. They give it away. The yes. more we can enable others, the less micromanaging, the less you know, dictatorial, authoritarian type rule that they have, that's where people grow and that's where our children grow as well. The, the parallels between great parenting and great leadership uh, across the board across the board, you know, you've got to give them the room to grow in every organization and in every family. I love what you're sharing there about this notion of uh, being replaceable because so many people focus at work, especially, but I, I suspect that it flows into every part of their life. Um, they focus on this notion of being irreplaceable. If I'm irreplaceable, then I can't be taken away. I'm going to have this forever. I have my certainty. I have my security and I'm going to be irreplaceable. I'm, I mean something. I'm important. And that means I'm going to get whatever it was that they were hoping to get from the role. I'm, that's what I'm getting. And it actually keeps them stuck. Even if we yeah. just look at the career perspective, someone just being replaceable, or someone being irreplaceable, if someone's irreplaceable, why would you give them a promotion? Why would you want to support, if you're the manager, why would you choose them to move up? Because, I mean, they're irreplaceable. No one can replace them and you need them in that role. I'd imagine that that's very similar to what you're sharing about mums, a lot of mums in our society, yeah. seeing themselves as irreplaceable as the primary caregiver and then making themselves irreplaceable. They're entrenching themselves and then the dads in society have no choice but to say, well, 
I guess they're they're irreplaceable. How can how can we possibly encourage them to do something else? Because no one else can do it. They're irreplaceable. Is yeah. is that what you see everywhere in in corporate, in people who are entrepreneurs, in businesses, in sports teams, and at home? Yeah, one hundred percent, Harry. And team, when you're a team player, when it's not about you, when it's about the organisation, when it's about the family and your role within it, and going, you know what? I can adapt. I can change. I'll do uh, whatever's needed of me. And you find fulfilment in that. You know, this. A lot of us are scared to be a beginner at stuff. And, you know, we find that, you know, I, I do this well, so that's all I'm going to do. There's no growth in that. And it's very easy to have that taken away from you. When my daughter's mother and I first separated, I had a small car accident. And just out of that car accident, through a, a precautionary scan on, on my neck, they found some lumps and bumps and some horrible things that um, weren't meant to be there. And suddenly my future was precarious at best and uh, we don't want to go <laughs> where it was worse. But suddenly when the doctor spoke to me, it was like somebody punched me in the solar plexus and the wind had been taken out of me. Mm. And suddenly the only thing that mattered, you know, my house would be, my life had become like a house that was on fire. There were flames leaping through the roof and smoke billowing out the windows. And I was standing at the front and it was like, what are you prepared to dash back in there to try and save out of your whole life? And the only thing that came to me at that point was the impact this was going to have on my daughter. The only, and just thinking, how would she grow up without a dad, without ever getting to know her? Would she have a hole in her heart and her soul? You know, would she miss out? Would this impact her for the rest of her life, feeling sad or, or all of that? And the only, that was the only thing that mattered. And that's why I say a lot of us are building that house. And one day it's going to catch fire and we shouldn't have to wait for that. Um, you know, that's why I said I gained a clarity through that crisis that has stayed with me from then on. And that's why I say to guys, hey, your job, your business, your boss could get rid of you. The business could fall over, you know, financial crisis. We saw people lose everything. But if you lose yourself, there's no coming back from it. So you've got to stay there. You're going to, you know, that's why I say satisfaction rather than success, Harry, because it doesn't matter what I achieve or accumulate in life. If I fail as a dad, I, I, I fail. I'm nothing but a failure. And the same is me, you know, as long as I've lived my values, as long as I'm happy with who I am, the rest of the stuff takes care of itself. You're, you're reminding me of Ed Millett's story. Uh, are you familiar with Ed Millett? Uh, kind no. of like a motivational, inspirational speaker. Uh, you probably have a similar personality, definitely similar build either way. And uh, he he shared that uh, he had a, a health scare of some sort. It might have been a heart attack, might be something. And the doctor was like, you really need to get your life in order. He's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, sure. Like, no, no, seriously, you've really got to take action. Like, yeah, I, I know. That's cool. And then the... I must be butchering this story. But then the doctor asked something along the lines of, do you want to be walking your daughter down the aisle on her wedding day? So, well, of course. So, well, if you keep going the way you're going, you're not going to. And then everything changed for him. And his is quite inspirational and quite incredible. And it sounds like you had 
almost that exact same scare. Yeah, Harry, we're all one diagnosis, one accident, one one minute of inattention on the road from a completely different tomorrow than what we've ever had. Currently, we're all putting away our superannuation our between nine and 12% for a future that we might not want or may not even get, but we can't put away a certain percentage of our time to ensure that that future is going to be happening. So when people tell me, oh, I don't have time to exercise, you don't have time not to exercise mm. because the time with your children, that connection, those moments between the moments, the minutes here and the minutes there and those bits of exercise, they pay a compounding interest that accumulate over life. So a little bit away every day, every day, every day, suddenly you've got a reservoir or a reserve of something in because life changes, things happen. There may be weeks where you don't get to exercise, but you've got to get back to it. It's like savings. Save a bit, save a bit, save a bit. Gee, things are tight. I'm going to have to dip into it. But if you haven't saved a bit, you've got nothing to dip into and then suddenly you're living life by crisis management and once you're on that slippery slope and everything becomes stressful and things are taken out of out of your hands and that's why i say to people when things are good pretend they're bad and when things are bad pretend they're good so that whole you know i'm doing well things are great that's when i'm going to squirrel it away and when things are bad be a bit positive and go you know what uh, it Things aren't that bad because I've got some of that uh, reserve, some of that savings, and it it changes your mindset in a great way. Yeah, I mean, John and Julie Gottman uh, have uh, identified this scientifically with relationships. Right, we're we're talking about having I forgot the exact term. I think it's a like a positive emotional bank, and they they define a good relationship as having five positive experiences to one negative. So five positive, one negative. And a great relationship is 20 positive to one negative. And the reason for it is because if something bad happens, <laughs> you've got all this positive, which is in the bank, which you can take out of. And throughout that whole time, you're, you're most likely enjoying the time of the relationship as well. So you're trying to build up savings, but the act of saving is creating more savings. The act of saving is what's enjoyable rather than the need to save. 100%, 100%, Harry. And you know, that's why I'd say to dads, don't beat yourself up. We all honestly believe as organisations and as parents, a mistake can actually be such a great catalyst for a better outcome. So if I muck up with uh, Charlie, she lets me know. And that's why I say, but you're right, I'm sorry. It shows that I'm human. It shows that she's worthy of respect. And it's real. The same with organisations. When they have a failure, a true health, heartfelt apology and some action on that will actually endear uh, a customer or loyalty more than the most perfect experience, I think. It's people, well, yeah, it's okay. We all muck up. And it's like, no, seriously. We were wrong. We want to make this right. What can we do? And all the times you'll have them uh, even refuse to have any compensation or, you know, just uh, when I used to be the strength and conditioning, I would say to my clients, if you do as I suggest and you don't get the results that I predict, 
I'll train you for free until you do. And people wouldn't get the results. They'd say, why, why do you think this isn't happening? Oh, you know, I haven't done this and I haven't done that. Well, do you want me to train you? I can train you for free until you get it if you're prepared to. No, it's fine. It's my fault. Whereas if I went in and said, I'm going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to get the results, and then they didn't get the results, and then I said, well, it's, it's on you. And that's why I say to them, if I haven't inspired you enough or, or got your mindset in the right thing because I can't change your life, I can only change your thinking. And if I can't change your thinking, if I can't inspire you, if I can't find the buttons and the motivators that you need, that's on me. That's not on you. So you've got to be honest with me and tell me why this is important. And then we can say why. And most of the time, people would change their goals because oh, I want to be a size eight. Well, why do you want to be a size eight? Oh, because it's healthy. Uh, come on, really? <laughs> oh, no, because you know, I want to be able to do, oh, I've got a wedding. Yeah, but why is it important? Well, my friends are going to be there. And last time they saw me, I was thinking, yeah, but why does that matter to you? And eventually we would throw out that goal. They would say, you know what, you're right. Because I would often suggest to them, if I could give you a knock in the head that hard that suddenly you believed you had the exact outcome that you wanted, but you didn't. So it was like, you know, your perception of you was perfect, but others could still see you as you were. Would that do? And it'd be like... No, I'd still want that. And that's what I'd say. Well, see, to me, that indicates that you're more concerned about other people's perceptions than your own. And that's a horrible place to be because they will move the goalposts. You will never, that's a horse you will never catch, you know, other people's perceptions because it doesn't matter how good you uh, become. Sometimes people won't be happy for you. Your success will really upset other people. One more, one more chocolate bar. One more Big Mac, one more drink. Yep. Just that external validation never satiates, right? Yep. Okay. Look, this is I, I'm I'm loving everything which you're sharing. I'm I'm thinking like a lot of a lot of parents I've seen have been really scared of allowing their kids to enforce their boundaries because it's like you allow them to do it, and then it's like ah, then what's my role? And I can't tell them what to do anymore. I, I'm so. As I've, I got a little bit emotional as I was hearing what you were sharing because just last night, my, my two-year-old, I was playing a little bit rough with her and it was lots of fun and normally she loves it. And then she went, no, daddy, I don't like it. <laughs> Thank you so much for telling me because if she didn't say that and that would just continue doing the same thing and she would have yep. just begrudged it. And then what would that teach her about her relationship with men in the future or her relationship exactly. with anyone? It's like, oh, don't, don't say something if you don't like it. Just kind of keep it within. Yeah, and Harry, like, that's great. That's so good that your daughter's got the security that she can say this, but that's exactly what you want to do. And there's a great um, uh, behavioural psychologist called Alfie Cohn, and he, he does um, unconditional parenting. And to start with, it's one of those books where you read it and it's like, no. No, no, it's just no. And just and you disagree with everything that he goes on about. And then you start to, you know, I would refer to my partner. I said, what do you think about this? And she would read it. She'd go, no, that's just wrong. I was go, but hang on, skip a few pages, but look at the outcome. Oh. And it forces you to reframe everything. So 
what happens is a lot of our children, so children will come home with an A on their report card and we, that's fantastic, that's great, that's good. So straight away our approval and their self-esteem has become contingent on that A. So then what happens is they find something challenging and difficult but interesting and they go, gee, I only get a C for this but I really find it interesting but Dad's not going to be that impressed because I only got a C. So they go for the easiest route. So then they look for that, how can I get an A? What can I do? So they do all of the easy stuff. Yes. Whereas we want them to be challenged and it's all about the effort and the interest because, as I say, no one can ever be good. We're all white belts at something at some stage. To expect to be a black belt and in today's society with uh, social media and all the rest of it, we look at the best of the best. When I wrote my book, oh, my goodness, the imposter syndrome, but this I've read this, I love this guy, I love this guy, and then I'd read my stuff and it's like <laughs> I'm kidding myself. And it's like, you know what, why am I comparing myself to the pinnacle of what I think is a great writer? I've just got to start. Will this be my best effort? It is at the time. Will it be my best effort a few books in? Not even close. But you've got to start on that path of growth. So we've got to be careful with our children. And that's why I'd say, Harry, I always put it back to them. What do you think of it? Because I want her to um, find her own path in her own life because I don't want her to get 20 years down the track and go, you know what, all that stuff I was doing because Dad liked it, I'm not really that fulfilled. I'm not really who I am. I'm not really, you know, again, we've instilled the vulnerability to peer pressure because we're the ultimate peer. And so when I'd say to Charlie, say, Dad, can I do this? And I'd say, well, I I have problems with it because there are certain things about it that I'm worried about. How do you think we can mitigate that? What can we do to stop it? to minimise those risks, or do you think that I'm being unreasonable? And she wanted to walk to school. Oh, Bob, you know, I'm worried about, well, Dad, we walked to school together and nothing's ever happened. And, Dad, if something happened, well, what would you do if something happened? Okay, but if you think you can do it, off you go. And you sit there and worry, and that's why I said, well, the first time, Bob, I'm going to meet you at school, okay? So I'll drive to school, you walk, you let me know what happened. And then she would be, well, Dad, what about if I walked with Lily? Even better. So Lily's dad would drop Lily at my place and they would walk to school together. And that's why I said, see, but there's always a way to do it. So a lot of times when we as parents, and it's the most common thing you hear it coming out of your mouth before you've even thought about it, is be careful. Well, it may as well be in a foreign language. It doesn't matter how slow or how loudly or how perfectly you enunciate it. What does be careful mean to a child who doesn't know what the risks are? So rather than be careful, exactly the same with any organisation, well, there are risks. Well, okay, so what's the plan is what we use. So my daughter wants to climb something and it's, it's terrifying the stuff that she does. She's fearless and she goes, Dad, I'm going to do this. And I'd say, all right, Bub, what's the plan? Because it's a performance cue like I use with the athletes. It's okay, switch on. There's something there you need to figure out. You need to think it through. Whereas if I say be careful, it's an alarm. It shuts off the upstairs part of the brain, the cortex, and brings it down into the lizard or the downstairs part of the brain 
where it's all fear-based, and it actually switches off the problem-solving, rational, logical part of the brain, which is exactly what you don't want. So be careful. It's like, oh, hang on, rather than, okay, but what's the plan? Well, I'll go from that one to that one to that one. Okay, give it a try. And that's why I say, Bub, what's the plan? Everything was your dad going to do that. Okay, but what's the plan? You know, we want to do something. Dad, I want to do this on Sunday. What's the plan, Bub? Well, if we go here first, then there, we'll have time to do that. Okay. So it's the same with organizations. Have a plan. Have you, have you ever had a time where you just needed to put your foot down and say, no, we're not doing that? Oh, Lots of lots of times, Harry, but I've also made a point of explaining to her mm-hmm. and we've got to come to that uh, outcome. And as I say, everything's got to be age-appropriate and developmentally um, suitable. So trying to reason with a, a two-year-old isn't going to work out that well using logic, but you can sit there and explain. So, you know, we use things like most of the time with children – it's transitions that are a problem. Doing this is great. When we want to stop doing that and go to something else, it's that transition that causes the problem. So it's up to us to find a way of transitioning. So giving countdowns. Bub, see the hand on the clock? When it gets to there, we have to go. Bub, see it's there? We've only got a minute to go. Bub, see it's there? So it initiates them and warms them up, up to do it, and then it becomes acceptable. And then it's, Bub, we can do this again, but... If every time we come here, because we had a problem getting out of the pool a couple of times, and Bub, if every time we come here, this is the outcome, it's no fun, is it? You want to stay, I want to go, you're upset, we're going to be late. Bub, we've got to learn because then we can keep coming. And that sinks in and becomes accepting of it. But um, there are many things where I've had to say no, but a lot of times we say no on instinct without thinking and so i'll often say to charlie but i'm thinking no at the moment but you tell me why it should be yes yes and she'll give me all the reasons well they're all good reasons but let me tell you why i'm thinking no and then she'll go oh yeah but we can do this and we can do that so it's that negotiation because there are only four types of parenting that's why i say to people as far as mums and dads go there's more variance between uh, mums in their parenting styles and what there is between mums and dads. So there's authoritarian, authoritative, um, permissible and ne- neglectful. Authoritative is the best one. So guardrails, firm expectations, behavioural and all the rest of it. So this behaviour is unacceptable. The emotions that are driving it, they're fine. I understand you're upset. I'd be upset too. But you can't behave like this when you're upset, bub, because it's just not acceptable. So you can tell me, co-regulate, bub, I know, I used to hate it too. I can see you're upset and, you know, that's normal. But we can't go throwing things. We can't be nasty to someone else. We can't do that because that's not acceptable, is it? No. I get that you're upset. So co-regulate, bring them down and then show them, you know what I would do instead? But I'd use some words. I'd say I'm feeling this at the moment and then we can maybe see if it's fair that uh, we're doing this or not because if you don't let me know, I'm just going to do it. That authoritarian one, you're going to do this my way, these are the rules, don't do this, don't do that, it takes away all of the kids' self-autonomy and what we call the terrible twos. 
That's a child just desperately trying to get some self-autonomy. And that's what we want as employees, as people, as human beings, is the ability to control our own outcomes, our own uh, destiny. And that's why helicopter parenting kills that in people. And that's why micromanagement of employees kills the engagement with their job. And it's the same with team members in in professional sports where it's like, right, you've got to get the ball, you've got to get to him. I'm going to tell you what we want as an outcome. And even in the military, this is our overall outcome that we want. How will this how will this action contribute to that outcome? Is it good? Is it bad? I'll leave that up to you. But this is what our main mission is. So we can change what we've got planned as long as it contributes to the outcome. It's yeah. Look, this is this is amazing because I know so many people who are scared of enforcing uh, the rules because their kids are just going to freak out even more. And in my in my mindset, I've just kind of adjusted to any time any time that my daughter's being a terrible two, which apparently her her educators at childcare said that she got there at thirteen months old, which was fun <laughs> for us. Any any time that she's really saying no and shouting and doing absolutely like absolute no. In my mind, I'm just thinking, well, she's asking me where the boundary is. She's pleading yep. to hear where the boundary is. Where is it? And sometimes you've got to enforce it. And other times you've just got to say, here's the natural consequence, right? Like the, I know how upset you are because you're sitting at the table eating dinner instead of playing with your toys. And you can see your toys over there. If I could see toys I really wanted to play with, I probably wouldn't want to sit at the table either. either. I'm just really worried if you don't eat enough food, then you're going to be hungry later. And there's not going to be any more food and so you'll be hungry and you won't sleep well and then it's not going to be a good night. And the first three times, four times, four nights in a row that we did that, uh, she sure enough went to bed hungry and cried and needed more cuddles and was upset. And then after that, great, she eats. And then she says, finished and she's done. Yeah. What, what other examples can you, can you share of that to any parents, dads and mums who are listening, right? It's it's funny, Harry. There's a um, behavioralist type of um, psychology where it's better suited to training puppies than raising healthy, <laughs> confident, assertive kids. You know, it's like you do this, you get a treat. So that uh, reward punishment doesn't work. Exactly what you said. That natural consequence, and kids will figure it out out themselves. Kids are. More, way smarter than um, what we believe. And they're also way more uh, sturdy than what we believe. I don't think there's a lot of kids starving to death in first world um, countries, but this whole, no, you've you've got to eat, you've got to eat, and they don't want to eat. The same with uh, sleep training. That's more about kids, more about us than our kids. You know, they have natural patterns and it's going to shift and change and all the rest of it. And, it's hard and it's inconvenient for us, but so is having kids. So we've got to do it. So with Charlie, it'll be okay. But a lot of the times it's here are some options. None of them may be good. So it'll be, you know, I've always included Charlie in the decision-making often because I'm pretty easy going. So, Bub, here are the choices. What do you want for dinner? Here are the choices. So give her input. Again, that encourages that self-autonomy. But if she speaks up a lot of the times, when Charlie realises that her input is valued and it makes a real difference around the house, oh, my God, like, you know, this kid is uh, 10 foot tall and all the rest of it and she wants to tell everyone, oh, Dad thought 
we should do this. But when I said we do that, you know, he knew it was a better idea. So, you know, we'll give her options for dinner. But what do you want for dinner? Here's the options, this, this or this. They're all basically the same option dressed up with different things. But then she'll go, you know, oh, Dad, can we have peas and beans? And But they're all green. You see in front? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, so let's go peas, corn. All right, all right. Tomorrow night I'll choose what's for dinner. Tonight you get to choose. But here are the choices that you get to make. So, again, it just builds up that thing where she's not going to be controlled or dominated and she's going to have real input, but she's also going to have to consider what she wants in life. So it's not just put in front of her and she goes through life unthinking. So I think that's what we need to do with the kids. So, you know, Bub, we can do this or we can do that. You choose and give them that power and let them start to choose. And the same with employees. They love it. Guys, here's the thing. They don't want to be dictated to. Here's what we're thinking. Here's what needs to be done. So, again, it can be basically the same choice or not going to be, let them have that input, have those meetings for the, the sections and the teams and get together. Guys, if you can think of a better way to do this, please come to me because I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what the day-to-day stuff looks like on the floor. But get together and all of a sudden these guys are like, right, what can we do? How can we be more efficient? Where they're just being dictated to and given checklists and this is what you're going to do from here to here to here. Sometimes the greatest ideas can come from somebody that you would least think of it. And it's just, you know what, I thought we could do. And Charlie has some great ideas where it's, Dad, you know, I could do this and you could do that. And, you know, okay, yep, let's go with that. And then it makes her keen to look for more things where she can contribute. So what if there aren't multiple choices? So what if there's you've already cooked pasta for the night and you you still want to give them a sense of autonomy, but you've already prepared it either way. Would you say yeah, something well, like, Do you want do you want pasta or do you want noodles? <laughs> is that what you do or, or is that just the wrong message entirely? Um you know, I I wouldn't do it. We're fairly um good with our thing before we start thing, because Charlie helps with dinner. So there are certain things that she likes that are her favourites, but we alternate some nights for her to be right. I'm I'm going to uh, choose tonight. You can choose tomorrow night. This is what we want. So Charlie's even got to the stage where it'll be like, you know, we'll go out and because Sundays used to be Charlie's day because I would work Saturday, so it would feel bad. So it would be, Bub, right, what do you want to do on Sunday? And she used to pick what we, where we went, what we ate, even what we so Saturday night would usually be watching a movie. This is when it was just her and I before I had my wonderful partner that I got now. And she would have a checklist and she would have the boxes numbered because I'd said, we're not going to get all of that done. So you need to pick your top ones that you need to get done. And so then she'd go, well, this is the one I want to do the most. And so then I'd explain, well, Bub, that one's on the other side of town from number two. So the order that you would do them in. And so she'd be right. And then it got to the point, Harry, where I'd say, right, and this is our budget for the day. So then she would even look up. So if we wanted to go to Luna Park, it was so much. And then, you know, Bub, you've got to look up the rough price of an ice cream. And then it would even be Saturday night, what do you want for dinner? Oh, Dad, I want this, but no dessert because tomorrow I want to have an ice cream at Luna Park because we can't have that much junk. So... It's explaining the reasons and the rationale behind certain things. So Charlie knows her, her macros, so she knows that 
we want protein, carbohydrates, vegetables, and it'll be about how many vegetables, how many pieces of fruit have you had? And so, you know, she'll even pack, she does all her own lunches for school and she's been doing it since she was six. And Bub, you've got to have a piece of fruit, you've got to have a bit of protein, you can have, you know, one one treat and, you know, she does it all and everything's a little checkbox type sort of thing and she's the most organised kid. She's better than me. We have whiteboards <laughs> all over the house where, Bub, if something's out, you got to put it on the list or we're not going to get it at the shops. So, so I, I sense that you've learned or you've shared that you've learned a lot of this from from the university courses which you've done, a lot of the books which you've read and a lot of things which you looked out for. And I'm starting to get a bit of a sense for what you learned uh, or for when you realized that your mum was right when she said, you just wait till you have kids, you'll see. Uh, who, el- who else has influenced you? Who else has helped you be as, as different of a parent and more effective as a parent than most people in society would have expected you to be? Um, Harry, I, I think the great thing was, as a dad, and especially as a 49-year-old, you know, bloke who led the life of uh, excess, there was no weight of expectations or curse of knowledge on me. There was, you know, as I said, I worked as a swim teacher a lot, and I, and I knew what uh, motivated kids in the pool. So to give, if I had a disruptive kid, in the pool, if I put him in charge, oh my goodness, suddenly, you know, he was, you know, so I would sit little Timmy on the end of the pool, right, Timmy, while we're here, can you make sure everyone's doing their kicking? And can you know the toes up? Yeah, I know that. Can you make sure? And he'd be, you know, turn into a little um, admiral. He'd be just saying, get back, Mike. They, they all did this good, except for Sally. Her toes were down and she wouldn't be, oh, great, Timmy, thanks, appreciate it. And the parents would be, you know, so how do you get him to do this? And I'd say because I give him that authority and that little bit of autonomy, whereas, you know, that's what makes him grow. And it's the same with anyone. We all want that. But just being able to do it my own and just figure out, oh, it's, Charlie's been like my little lab rat. And that's what drove me to developmental psychology because, like, this is fascinating. I can see the response to the stimulus. I can see what's happening, but I want to know about it. And the funny thing is, after doing the developmental psychology and looking back, now that I know the nuts and bolts, now that I've seen behind the curtain, there's, I, I wouldn't have changed anything. I don't mean to sound um, arrogant or conceited, but it wouldn't have changed my parenting in any, any way just because now I understand um, the finer points of how it works. But we've just got to realise the minute you, when and, and associating my daughter with an adult, going, you know, when parents say, I told them and told them and told them. I say, well, you don't think it's a problem with your messaging and communication? Somehow your child's at fault. <laughs> You're the grown adult with the developed, you know, fully developed brain and you're going, right, I've done this and done this and done this and done this a certain way and it's not working and I'm going to keep doing it and doing it and doing it until it works something's happening so the minute we raise our voice again straight away the upstairs part of the brain shuts down and straight away they're into that fight or flight and nothing's you know so something goes wrong bring him in close oh, come here oh, sit here sit on my knee that but do you understand why that can't happen why we can't let that keep happening now i understand 
whether it was an accident, whether it was, you know, a bit of anger, whether it was it like that, but that can't happen. So I need you to think next time it happens and calm everything down, co-regulate first, connect, and then put it in. But rather than right, right, do this. But also don't set your kids, your team, or your organisation, your employees up for failure. Think about the pinch points and the friction beforehand. So if the mornings are always a rush and it's a terrible way to start the day, get stuff done the night before. Streamline stuff. Look at the processes that you've got, got in place. Figure out why it's a thing. So, you know, my daughter sometimes is slow tying her shoes because she's got to do double knots and all the rest of it, but then she just slips them off. So, bub, you know how it takes five minutes to get your shoes undone and then put them on? When you take them off, what do you think? And this is just my thought. Do you think it might make it quicker in the morning if we did it, you know, undid them first so that they're ready to go? Because then I'd say, well, watch how the firemen come down the pole and get their stuff on, ready to go, all prepared, because we know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. How can we make it easier? Your lunch, you can make it in the morning or you can make it the night before you go to bed. So get that routine in. And it's just a lot of that. But you've just got to realise our way isn't always the right way. And when people talk about, oh, this parenting style works best, well, that doesn't take into consideration your child's unique personality because, mm. you know, every kid is different. And it's like when people say to me, oh, what's the secret of life? Well, it depends. Who's life? Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, everyone's different and every child's different. And I've seen twins, obviously the same parenting, the same, that are completely different. And that's why I say, well, this parenting style is going to work and, you know, this act, you've got to find what, what works. And this um, tarring everyone with one brush in, in any way, shape or form, whether it be, you know, religious, sexuality, gender, race, they're like this and this is what they do and it's just intellectually lazy and doomed to fail. Mm. That, that's, the, that's the whole notion of equality versus equity, right? Yeah. It's quality is give everyone the exact same bike. What if they're in a wheelchair? What if they're too small for the bike? What if they're too big for the bike? What if they've I don't know, got some sort of injury or they're not able to use a push bike? Do you still give everyone the exact same bike? Really? Yeah. There's a lot what you're sharing here about uh, the sense of agency, but it doesn't, when most people talk about the sense of agency within their own life, they're, they're talking about their life. They're talking about what they do. And that, that's clearly a big part of, of what you're focused on. But it sounds like you do the exact same thing with Charlie. And uh, if you had employees and managers, then you do the exact same thing with them as well, right? It's all about agency. Yep, 100%. That, that's, that's what we all want. Well, most of us want, but some of us are scared to have that agency, to have that control in our own hands because we've, we've been brought up fearful of it. And helicopter parenting um, doesn't instill that in our children. Micromanagement doesn't instill that in, in our employees. And um, that fire and brimstone of the old coaches, you're going to get out there and you're going to run through them and you're going to do this and you, you know, it's not, not going to do it. And what we've got to do, and a lot of us try to minimise um, stress and all the rest of it and uh, fear and all the rest of it. 
the, what I what I say to Charlie is when we equate it back to because she's a big fan of roller coasters now, and so I say to Bob, see this feeling. Think about how you're feeling at the moment. Are you scared or are you excited? And she, oh, I'm excited. I've gone right. Do you think scared would feel different? Uh no. So, so you know when I jump out from behind things because we play practical jokes. We've got rubber spiders everywhere on each other, and I jump out and go, oh, and you go, ah. Oh. Do you think that feels the same as when we first hit that big thing? Yeah, it sort of does. I said, well, that's just telling you that something important is about to happen. So this bit where we're just getting into the roller coaster, this, oh, that's telling you to pay attention. That's like, don't miss this. Look around, enjoy it, because all the best stuff happens on the other side of that scary, that uh, nervous excitement type stuff. This is at the end of it, you're going to look back and go, wow, that was amazing. So whether it's an exam or going on stage or a competition, this is a bit where it's going to be enjoy the moment, live in that moment. It's a challenge. And at the end of it, you're going to be a little bit better than what you were before it, no matter what the outcome. Yeah, I love that. And I've, I've found it really interesting because I know a few people who are ex-military. Uh, Australian military um, and a couple others, but they, there are some of them who become really successful after they've left, like successful in terms of like they've achieved a hell of a lot, like they've continued to move forward and they've gone so much. And there are others who just don't go anywhere. And I suspect this is the difference. The one, like with both of them, when, well, with all of them, when they're in the military, they're being told, you better go through, you better do this, like drop down and give me 50 or, go into battle right it's it's always being they're always being um always being told what to do yeah but the ones who come back into kind of normal society which is far less far less regulated uh or far less demanding they're the ones who engage in the right way are the ones who take that voice and put it into their own head they own it so they choose what they want to do and then they just have that they just have that military officer's head inside their voice saying keep moving keep going don't stop now like just mm. you got it you're on the mission fulfill the mission and it sounds like from everything that you're sharing that you've just embraced that as well yeah then harry that's what i'd say though there's that because i'm not searching for a certain outcome i'm enjoying where i am mm. right here right now and i'm curious about it and um there's stuff that's what I say to Charlie all the time, but there's certain stuff that just has to happen. That stuff, how you feel about it, you, you shouldn't be worried about how you feel about it. You've just got to go, you know what, it's just going to happen. I, I love the uh, analogy of the two cows walking through the the paddock and it's raining and one cow looks at the other and says, Steve, don't you hate this rain? He says, no, not really. And he says, why not? And he said, well, would it stop it? And <laughs> it's... I'd say to Charlie, you know, there's some stuff where you go, you know what, I really don't like this. If it's got to happen, stop thinking about how you feel about it and just let it happen because there's certain things in life that just have to happen and we've got to accept it. And I love Viktor Frankl's book so much. It's one of the books that really changed, you know, and he's all, you know, suffering and sacrifices cease to be once it finds meaning. Yes. And that's why I say sometimes that mundane stuff, if you give it meaning because it's a scaffolding for the rest of life, 
it's okay. And you always have that moment to decide. Yeah. I've, I've loved this conversation and I'm sure that anyone who's listening has gotten so much value from it. But let me, let me try and read back what I, what I feel is the message that you're sharing. So we started out really talking about success. And when we were talking about success, you said, look, I really don't like the word success. I'd rather, am I satisfied? I'd rather use satisfaction as the gauge because that means I'm really enjoying myself. And as you continue talking about that, you started saying, you know, adults tend to be too unreflective. They're habituated. You've got to have this, in order to have a successful life or an enjoyable life, you've got to be able to have this freedom to explore and meander. And, you know, just like how your mom said, like, there are some, thing, like, there are some things which you just won't know until you've got to go through it. And just wait till you have kids. Then you're going to know, and then you'll realize. And at the same time, and the same time, coin you're talking about you had this sudden realization of all of your dad's lessons when charlie was born you just couldn't have been so grateful and that wouldn't have happened unless you had the challenges in front of you and there was this metaphor which we didn't dive too too deep into but you're saying you know things change you're always going to be moving you can't keep going back to things you can never step you can never step in the same river twice and you realize that you're always doing things out of uh, out of the desire for external validation, right? That eating the junk food, great, feels great at the time, but you're always going to feel regretful afterwards. You're always going to feel like, oh man, should I have really done that? That is if you feel like you can't control yourself. And so we spoke about this whole notion of as soon as you have that thought, you incorporate a lot of mindfulness that I don't like this, then you just choose to override it and just don't go down that path. I mean, equality is, equality for everyone is a human right. Like everyone should be able to have that choice to be able to say, I don't like this, or I do like this, and I want to go down that path, or I don't want to go down that path. And that's exactly what you've been instilling in Charlie. That with this focus of just really enjoying those moments between the moments, right? Like the five-minute car trip, make it something special. The Just talking in bed before going to sleep. Like just talking on the bed. Like it only takes a few more minutes, but it would make such a such a big difference. And so you kept you kept coming back to this concept of the fulfillment is in the journey, not in the role you get at work, not in the outcome of how your kids are. It's fulfillment for the fulfillment for you has always been in that uh, the journey of the opportunity to explore what you love doing and to live in life with your values. And you said this, uh, I, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but I think it was along the lines of don't fear being a beginner, right? Everyone's going to have, everyone has, something which they're doing which is going to feel like a white belt and a lot of people tend to fear it and so i'd imagine that's also coming into play with a lot of people when they're going into work or when they're having an interaction with their kids and like, oh my god i don't know what i'm doing and i definitely can't give them more autonomy because ah, crap, how, how can i possibly do any of this and so this whole message of what you're sharing is if you want to be able to have an enjoyable and a satisfied life and one which has a lot of success and reaches a lot of other people. And it's better for the world and for everyone around you. And it takes care of yourself as well, right? Financially. Then it's got to be in line with your values and something which is really important to you. Because motivation will only get you so far. But inspiration and living in line with those values is going to take you all the way. And I just, like this conversation, you've been so, it's just so easygoing. You're so... You're so truthful, open, honest. You are exactly who you're saying you are. 
Like there's some people you don't get that feeling, but with you, it's just so clear. And I've loved this conversation because you live your life directly in line with what you're preaching. Like you're, you're acting at first and you're getting the results. And that's just beautifully inspirational for so many. It definitely was for me. So thank you so much for, for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for the opportunity, Harry. I've really enjoyed it as well. One, one last thing. Yes. I, I do a talk that's called Reframing uh, Masculinity and Courage. Okay. And one thing that I, I'd say to the, the guys or I suggest, I've gone, right, you get paid a certain amount per hour, per year to uh, behave a certain way, to align yourself with the, the company uh, culture and to dress a certain way. Some of us have to wear uniforms for so many hours each week, each year. How much would you want to do that for 24 hours for one year? And what about for five years, how much would you want to wear that uniform, to speak and behave in a certain way, to make sure you're aligned with the company's vision, mission and culture for a whole year so that you're on call, all the rest of it, to dress, sound, behave and look a certain way for one year? Well, what about five, even ten? How much would it take? And then I asked them, well, then why are you doing it for free? Why are you dressing, acting, behaving in a certain way because of what society expects from you for free? Find out who you are and just go, you know what? What would it matter if I'm not, if I don't look or seem as they expect me to be, what difference would it make? What harm would it do? Who would it hurt? Would it be their expectations or your life? that would be enhanced and improved because I know which I'd rather choose. Yes. Powerful. And that's something which I'm really going to need to reflect on a lot. Uh, but I really, I really admire you sharing it as well because you're the reason you've inspired so many is because you just share your journey. And a lot of people are scared to share their journey because they're worried about what people are going to think of them. And you, yeah. you ended up having Charlie at just the right time after just enough life experience to be able to finally take on all of those lessons. Do you, I'd love to finish off with something that's just really fun and enjoyable. Do you, do you have a, do you have a really funny story, uh, especially like any time in your life, but I'd imagine there's gotta be something as a, with Charlie or as a result of Charlie, that's just, that's just always a really enjoyable story to share and to hear. Oh, yeah, just, I'm the biggest, biggest sook in the world. Um, Harry, like I've become emotionally incontinent since this uh, kid showed up. You know, the first 49 years of my life was Blokestone Tribe and you know, I've been stabbed and shot and hit with bottles and it was all, you know, standing at the bar with a tea towel on my head with bloodstream drinking afterwards because I didn't want to admit that it hurt and all of those uh, stupid things. And then, you know, my, my daughter... <laughs> came out one day with tomato sauce on hand going, Dad, Dad, Dad. <laughs> I nearly fainted. <laughs> yeah, I've got you. <laughs> and we've got this thing. But um, we've been challenged a lot going into parents' rooms to change Charlie. And um, there was one day where I walked in and the mums looked at me and I thought, you know what, I can't be bothered. 
And it wasn't until I walked in to use the toilet that I realised that Charlie wasn't with me. <laughs> I'd gone to the shops on my own. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to come out. And, oh, so I thought I had my time. I'm not a weirdo, I promise. Just, and so, you know, we, we um, sometimes we jump to conclusions, even despite ourselves, Harry. I'm thinking, I'm being judged here for being a dad, and I wasn't even with my daughter. <laughs> oh, wow. That, that, was, that was very enjoyable to hear. Yeah. On that note, thank you so much for your time and thank you for your your involvement in this project and for sharing your message you're welcome again harry thanks so much uh... i hope you enjoyed this episode of success with purpose and i also hope that you feel capable to apply some of the perspectives and learnings from this episode in your own life if you enjoyed this conversation be sure to like and subscribe below and until next time live with purpose